Chapter Sixteen of the Dashay Diamonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dashay Diamonds by Richard Marsh. Chapter Sixteen: A Modern Instance of an Ancient Practice. Skittles, when he had apparently with an effort mastered the nature of Mister Lawrence's instructions, grinned from ear to ear. He went to where a number of iron rods with broad heads were heaped together on a shelf. They were branding irons. Selecting one of these, he thrust it into the heart of the fire which glowed on the blacksmith's furnace. He heaped fuel on to the fire. After a movement or two of the bellows, it became a roaring blaze. Lawrence turned to Mr. Paxton. Still once more, are you disposed to tell us where the Dashay diamonds are? No. Lawrence smiled. He addressed himself to the two men who held Paxton's arms. Hold him tight. Now, Skittles, bring that iron of yours. Burn a hole under Mr. Paxton's right shoulder blade through his clothing. Skittles again moved the iron from the fire. It had become nearly white. He regarded it for a moment with a critical eye. Then, advancing with it held at arm's length in front of him, he took up his position at Mr. Paxton's back. Don't let him go. Now. Skittles thrust the flaming iron towards Paxton's shoulder blade. There was the smell of burning cloth. For a second, Paxton stood like a statue. Then, leaping right off his feet, he gave first a forward and then a backward bound, displaying as he did so so much vigor that, although his guardians retained their hold, Skittles apparently was taken unawares. Possibly, with an artist's pride in good workmanship, he had been so much engrossed by the anxiety to carry out the commission with which he had been entrusted thoroughly well that he was unprepared for interruptions. However that may have been, when Paxton moved, his grip on the iron seemed to suddenly loosen, so that, losing for the moment complete control of it, it fell down between Paxton's arms, the red-hot brand at the further end resting on his pinioned wrists. A cry as of a wounded animal, which he was totally unable to repress, came from his lips. A cry half of rage, half of agony. But the red-hot iron, while inflicting on him frightful pain, had at least done him one good service. If it had burned his flesh, it had also burned the cords which bound his wrists together. Exerting in his passion and his agony the strength of half a dozen men, he severed the scorched strands of rope as if they had been straws, and hurling from him the two fellows who held his arms, who had expected nothing so little as to find his arms unbound, he stood before them, so far as his limbs were concerned, free. Once lost, he was not to be easily regained. He was quicker in his movements than Skittles had ever been, and the latter's quickest days were long since done. Dropping onto one knee, plunging forward under Skittles' guard, he butted that gentleman with his head full in the stomach, and had snatched the iron by its handle from his astonished hands before he had fully realized what was happening. Springing with the rapidity of a jack-in-the-box to his feet again, he brought the dreadful weapon down heavily on Skittles' head. With a groan of agony, that gentleman dropped like a log onto the floor. Armed with the heated iron, a kind of article with which no one would care to come into close contact, Paxton turned and faced the others, who as yet did not seem fully alive to what had taken place. 
"'Now, you brutes, I may be bested in the end, "'but I'll be even with one or two of you before I am.' "'Lawrence stood up. "'Will you? "'That still remains to be seen. "'Shoot him, Baron.' "'The Baron fired. "'Either his marksmanship or his nerve or his something was at fault, for he missed.' Before he could fire again, Paxton's weapon had crashed through his grotesquely tall high hat, and apparently through his skull as well, for he too went headlong to the floor. Quick as lightning as he fell, Cyril took his revolver from his nerveless grasp. Lawrence and his two colleagues were, a little late in the day perhaps, making for him. But when they saw how he was doubly armed and his determined front, they paused, and therein showed discretion. The tables had turned. The fortune of war had gone over to what hitherto had been distinctly the losing side. So at least Paxton appeared to think. Now the question is, what shall I do with you? Shall I shoot all three of you, or shall I brain one of you with this pretty little plaything which I have literally snatched from the burning? If one could draw deductions from the manner in which he bore himself, Lawrence never for an instant lost his presence of mind. When he spoke it was in the easy, quiet tones which he had used throughout. "'You move too fast, forgetting two things. One, that you are caught here like a rat in a trap, so that unless we choose to let you, you cannot get out of this place alive. The other, that I have only to summon assistance to overwhelm you with the mere force of numbers.' "'Then why don't you summon assistance "'if you are so sure that it will come at your bidding?' "'I intend to summon assistance when I choose. "'I give you warning that if you move so much as a muscle "'in an attempt to attract the attention "'of any other of your associates who may be about the place, "'I will shoot you.' "'For answer, Lawrence smiled. "'Suddenly lifting his hand, he put two fingers to his lips "'and blew a loud, shrill, peculiar whistle.' Simultaneously Paxton raised the revolver, and pointing it straight at the other's head, he pulled the trigger. And that was all. No result ensued. There was the sound of a click, and nothing more. His face darkened. A second time he pulled the trigger, again without result. Mr. Lawrence's smile became more pronounced. His tone was one of gentle badinage. I thought so. "'You see, you will move too quickly. "'It is a six-chambered revolver. "'I was aware that my highly esteemed friend "'had discharged two barrels earlier in the evening "'and had not reloaded. "'I knew that he had taken two, if not three, little pops at you, "'and had had another little pop just now. "'If, therefore, he had not recharged in my absence "'the barrels I had seen him empty, "'and had taken, before I interrupted him, three little pops at you,' The revolver must be empty. I thought the risk worth taking, and I took it. While Cyril seemed to hesitate as to what to do next, Lawrence, raising his fingers to his lips, blew another catcall. While the shrill discord still travelled through the air, Paxton sprang towards him. Stepping back, the whistler, picking up the wooden chair on which he had been sitting, dashed it in his assailant's face, and at the same moment the two men who had hitherto remained passive spectators of what had been practically an impromptu if abortive duel, closed in on Paxton from either side. He struck at one with his clubbed revolver. 
The other, getting his arm about his throat, dragged him backwards on to the floor. He was down, however, only for a second. Slipping from the fellow's grasp like an eel, he was up again in time to meet the renewed attack from the man whom he had already struck with his revolver. He struck at him again, but still the man was not disabled. Meanwhile his more prudent companion, conducting his operations from the rear, again got his arms about Paxton. The three went in a heap together on the floor. Just then the door was opened, and someone entered on the scene. Paxton did not stop to see who it was. Exercising what seemed to be a giant's strength, he succeeded in again freeing himself from the grasp of his two opponents. Leaping to his feet he made a mad dash at Lawrence. That gentleman, springing nimbly aside, eluded the threatening blow from the clubbed revolver, delivered neatly enough a blow with his clenched fist full in Mr. Paxton's face. The blow was a telling one. Mr. Paxton staggered. Then, just as he seemed about to fall, recovered himself and struck again at Mr. Lawrence. This time the blow went home. The butt of the revolver came down upon the other's head with a sickening thud. The stricken man flung up his arms and, without a sound, collapsed in an invertebrate heap. The whole place became filled with confusion and shouts, with what seemed to be a sudden inspiration, swinging right round with the branding iron which he had managed to retain in his possession, Paxton struck at the hanging lamp which was suspended from the ceiling. In a moment the atmosphere began to be choked by the suffocating fumes of burning oil. A sheet of fire was running across the floor. Heedless of all else, Paxton rushed towards the door. Such was the confusion occasioned by the disappearance of the lamp and by the appearance of the flames that his frantic flight seemed for the moment to be unnoticed. He tore through the door, up a narrow flight of steps rising between two walls which he found in front of him, only, however, to find an individual awaiting his arrival at the top. This individual was evidently one who deemed that there are cases in which discretion is the better part of valour, and that the present case was one of them. When Paxton appeared, instead of trying to arrest his progress, he moved hastily aside, evincing, indeed, a conspicuous unwillingness to offer him any impediment in his wild career. Paxton passed him. There was a door in front of him. In his mad haste, throwing it open, he went through it. In an instant it was banged behind him. He heard the sound of a bolt being shot home into its socket, and of a voice exclaiming with a chuckle on the other side of the door, "'Couldn't have done it better if I'd tried, I couldn't. Locked hisself in. Straight he has.' Too late Paxton learned that, to all intents and purposes, that was exactly what he had done." The place in which he found himself was pitchy dark. He had supposed that it might be a passage leading to a door beyond. It proved to be nothing of the kind. It seemed instead to be some sort of cupboard, probably a pantry, for he could feel that there were shelves on either side of him, and that on the shelves were what seemed to be victuals. Though narrow, by stretching out his arms he could feel the wall with either hand, it extended longitudinally to some considerable distance, possibly to twenty feet. At the further end there was a window. It was at an inconvenient height from the floor, and directly under it was a shelf. 
on this shelf so far as he was able to judge was an indiscriminate collection of pieces of crockery the shelf however was a broad one and disregarding the various impedimenta with which it seemed to be covered by clambering on to it he was brought within easy reach of the window it was a small one and had two sashes had the sashes not been there there might have been sufficient space to enable him to thrust his body through the frame they were of the ordinary kind moving up and down and in consequence when they were open to their widest extent only half the window space was available either for ingress or for egress he did throw up the lower sash as far as it would go only to discover that it scarcely gave him room enough to put the whole of his head outside taking firm hold of the framework he tested its solidity it appeared to be substantially constructed of some kind of heavy wood though he exerted considerable force it could hardly be induced to rattle to remove it even if it was removable would be a work of time and of labour time he had not at his command although he was fastened in his assailants were not fastened out at any moment they might enter his struggles against such odds would have to be recommenced all over again he was conscious that the best of his strength was spent he was stiff and sore weary and bewildered nor had he escaped uninjured he was covered with bruises bruises which ached where the red-hot branding iron slipping from mr skittles grasp had struck against his wrists the flesh felt as if it had been burnt to the bone it occasioned him exquisite pain no in his present plight recapture would be easy after the recent transactions in which he had played so prominent a figure recapture would mean nameless tortures if not death outright his only hope lay in flight or the thought came to him as he was endeavouring to marshal his faculties in sufficient order to enable him to take an impartial view of his position in summoning help summoning help yes why not the thing was feasible here was the open window he could call through it his cries might be heard and if he could only make his shouts heard by some one without the alarm would be raised and he would soon be rescued from this den of thieves thrusting his head out as far as possible he shouted with might and with main help murder help he listened he seemed to hear the faint echo of his own words travelling mockingly mournfully through the silent air naught else was audible all else was still as the grave nor did the prospect of his being able to make himself heard seem promising he had no notion whereabouts the house in which he was so unwilling a guest was situated in front of him he could see nothing but open space there was neither moon nor stars nor was the atmosphere particularly clear yet as his eyes grew more accustomed to the darkness it seemed to him that he could see for miles and that there was nothing to be seen there was not a light in sight no glare of lights upon the distant sky the shadow neither of a house nor of a tree no murmur of voices no hum of far-off traffic not even the unceasing turmoil of the restless sea since so far as he was able to perceive the place seemed to be given up to such utter and entire solitude it struck him with unpleasant force that it might be located in the very heart of the open downs in that case it was quite upon the cards that there was not another human habitation within miles 
at night even yet few places are more deserted than the brighton downs all sorts of deeds without a name so far as human witnesses are concerned can be wrought thereon with complete impunity if the house was really built upon the downs his chances of making himself heard were remote indeed still in his desperate position he was not disposed to give up hope without making at least another trial once more he shouted help murder help again he listened and this time from what evidently was a considerable distance there was borne through the night what seemed to be an answering call hallo seldom was so slight a sound so grateful to a listener's ears with renewed ardour he repeated his shouts with if possible even greater vigour than before quick help murder help again from afar there seemed to come a faint response hallo and at the same instant he became conscious of voices speaking together outside the door of the cul-de-sac in which foolishly enough he had allowed himself to be made for a second time a prisoner End of chapter 16